Is it one? So is it one fifty one or one fifty two? It is two fifty one. Uh huh. Two fifty one. So Got it. You had all the numbers. In numbers, there, just you to... know, they're not my strength. <laughs> we had this conversation last week too about numbers not being my strength. Here. No. Well, just you not being our strength. <laughs> oh. oh wow okay good i'm oh. glad do they have one day amazon delivery in portland matt uh yeah they do okay i'm gonna send some aloe over real quick so that's it for <laughs> uh don't worry we missed you <clears throat> that's very kind thank you Welcome to the Fascinating Podcast, episode 251. I'm Matt Michelatos. I'm JR Homemade Rocket Asteros. <laughs> I'm Kathy. Where have you been, Matt Kong? Uh, Where have you been, Matt? Oh, here and there. I, uh, I went to London for a week. Which means I missed, did I miss two episodes? Because I was literally on a plane on our recording days both times. Sort of. We actually recorded an Oscars debrief, but then snipped it into the season premiere so that you were only gone for part of one episode. And then you missed last week's episode. Okay, okay. Good, good. What was last So week's to the episode? listeners, it's as though you've only missed one. Tell me about last week's episode because I haven't listened to it yet. <laughs> uh, last week, we talked about what pop culture artifacts were helpful in reconstructing our faith. Oh, interesting. Well, that is yeah. episode 250 for those That's who right. haven't listened to it yet. I'll have to go check that out. It was really good, good with numbers. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. That's, uh, you know, in my past, I just had two numbers. That was large number and small number, but I've been working to remember a few Medium others. numbers. Medium numbers. Yeah. Great. Specific numbers. So you went to London. Tell me more about that. So this is my first time to the UK. Uh, it was great. I had a really wonderful time. Uh, Krista and I went together. And then one of our old friends who we met 21 years ago lives there now, a uh, really close, good friend. Uh, so we stayed with her uh, for a lot of the time we were there. I was speaking at an evangelism conference for university students from around the UK. Uh, some came from Portugal, which was really fun. And the UK is very diverse, so there were kids also from uh, a couple of other places who are studying in the UK. So it was an international group of, uh, of young people who were just amazing. Just loved my time with them. We had a really good time. Uh, and then we, you know, we walked all over London. We went to the Globe Theatre, which is where Shakespeare, uh, all his plays were performed. We saw, you know, churches that have been around since medieval times. Um, we uh, we went to Oxford, which is where C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien lived uh, and hung out. So we saw a bunch of places there that were really meaningful and interesting to me. Uh, and then we went to, uh, oh, of course, we had fish and chips and bangers and mash and did all that kind of stuff. And, and Indian food, which is, you know, in Britain is considered local food now, really. 
And then we went to a show on the West End, which is kind of London's version of Broadway. Almost all the Broadway shows come to the West End. And it's way cheaper, which surprised me. But we went to a show that's actually a British-born show called Six, which is uh, about Henry VIII's wives. So he had six wives. (laughs) And, you know, he beheaded several of them. He divorced most of them. Uh, and, and it's the show six is really interesting. It's the six wives, ex-wives, uh, doing a rock show battle of the bands to prove whose life was the worst with Henry. Oh my goodness. And it's really funny. The music is fun. The women were amazing. It's an all female show. The band is all women. The actors are all women. And actually I noticed even the people running the lights, like, Everyone involved was women. Uh, so it's a kind of a feminist rock show. Uh, and it was super entertaining. Just had a great time. So, yeah, the whole trip was really good, refreshing uh, in, in a variety of ways. That sounds amazing. I, the show sounds amazing. Uh, so it just came to Broadway last week. So if you're in the New York area or on the on the East Coast or happen to be in New York City, check it out. It's a pretty short show. It's it's just an hour and a half, no intermission, oh. uh, but a lot of fun. I assume they don't do any spin on the uh, Herman's Hermits song, I'm Henry VIII, I Am. No, no, they don't. They don't touch it. Uh, it's interesting. It really decenters Henry in a variety of ways that uh, is really fascinating. So I also have to assume that seeing it in London will feel different from seeing it in New York. I think that's probably true. I I couldn't tell which things that were unique to the show were unique just because of the show versus seeing it in London. Um, yeah, I I uh, I don't know, but for sure the audience was different. I think than what you'll get in New York. Um, but it was fun, and one of the things they do uh, if you do go to the show, they make a big deal about not recording anything, but then they ask you to record the finale on your phones because they want it to go out on social media. So it's so fun. They're like playing to the cameras. They're like grabbing people's phones out of the audience and running around on stage with them and, you know, stuff like that. It's just a really enjoyable show. Fascinating. I love that. And uh, you also got to hang out with C.S. Lewis sort of, right? Yeah. So when we went to Oxford, Uh, So that's where C.S. Lewis went to school at Oxford University, and then he taught at Magdalen College, which is right next door. And uh, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien taught at Oxford. So you're walking around there. You see the lamppost from Narnia. Like, uh, it looks exactly like it. It's the one C.S. Lewis saw and was kind of like, you know, uh, thought of it when he started writing the Narnia books. You're seeing things like supposedly some of the medieval towers there. They're saying, oh, Tolkien was picturing this when he wrote the two towers. <clears throat> we went to uh, Magdalen College is really interesting because Lewis uh, lived on campus, right? Which is pretty common at the time, especially for a bachelor. Uh, so he had rooms there at a certain point of his life when he's in his 30s. And uh, you can you can stand down in the courtyard and see the room where 91 years ago, C.S. Lewis says uh, that he had felt God chasing after him and that he couldn't get away. He was atheist and that he got down on his knees next to his bed and he prayed and said that he wanted his life to be completely God's, uh, which is pretty amazing 
that you can just, you can look up and see that room. And then there's a path that goes out around the property, around a little lake, and there's some running water through there uh, that you can walk on. And that is the place where 89 years ago, C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, and a guy named Hugo Dyson were walking on this path. And Dyson and Tolkien point out to him, you love in mythology when a God sacrifices himself to himself to bring some good to humanity, unless it's the story in the Bible. And Lewis was like kind of shocked by it, the insight they had into him. And then they were explaining to him, you're, you're fighting against this, uh, but it's not just myth. It's true myth. And this was the turning point for him that they stayed up till three in the morning. Like they went on this walk, they went back to his rooms and he says that the next morning he was going to the zoo with his brother and he's riding on the motorcycle. And he said, when they started out on the ride to the zoo, he didn't believe that Jesus was God. And by the time they arrived at the zoo, he did. Mm -hmm. So for me, I think with C.S. Lewis having been such a large literary figure in my spiritual development over the years, it was really moving uh, and beautiful to be in these places and go like on this path two friends uh, had the guts to share with their third friend. Hey, here's what we think about God. And here's where we think you're wrong uh, and could grow. And that that changed not just his life, but a bunch of other people's lives, in including mine. Uh, and I think that's really amazing. And then of course we also went to uh, there's a really famous pub called the Eagle and child, which is where the inklings. So CS Lewis, Tolkien, bunch of their friends, Charles Williams, uh, would hang out and drink beer and smoke and read their work to each other. Uh, and they met like every day, most every day for 20 years in the mornings to drink and smoke and read. Uh, so we went and hung out there <laughs> and Krista and Nicole had a drink and I sat and thought how ordinary the place looked, honestly, uh, you, you, you wouldn't even notice it if you didn't know the historical significance, which is a lot of Britain, I think. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, all that to say, it was a really, um, meaningful experience for me to walk, walk around those places. That was a daily practice of theirs. Yeah. For like 20 years. My so gosh. it kind of switched who was there day to day. Sure. Uh, but most every day, a good chunk of them would show up in the morning before they were teaching classes uh, or sometimes the afternoon, sometimes the evening. Um, yeah. Maybe get a little food, sit and enjoy it. Uh, it was funny, though. Uh, during World War II, they actually switched pubs because so many servicemen were coming in there and there was a beer shortage that there wasn't always beer. So they switched to another pub that we walked by that one too. Well, uh, they've got their priorities. Kind of I mean, how can you share your work and read <laughs> if you don't have beer? <laughs> well, and I love that <clears throat> Breakfast they beer. were, they were very upfront with each other about their work. Like CS Lewis tried to share uh, the Lion, the witch and the wardrobe and everyone, literally everyone said, this is trash. So he actually destroyed, he burned his first draft. Um, Tolkien was reading from his work and uh, Hugo Dyson, who had been with the two of them that morning or that day when they were talking about Jesus said, Oh no, not another effing elf. Like he hated it. <laughs> 
so it's really funny. They didn't necessarily like each other's work, but they really liked each other. And they had moments, right, where they loved everything that the others were working on. But uh, I thought that was funny and, like, kind of a fun, like, the the humanity of being friends with people you can strongly disagree with and, like, mm-hmm. not like the same things uh, I think is really cool. I can't imagine that. <laughs> I have to say, I bet my writing would be better if we all hung out every morning and had breakfast. Uh, and breakfast beer. Yeah. Not yeah, just breakfast. So. Breakfast beer. <laughs> well, I couldn't do breakfast beer. Gross. But... Um, <laughs> I'd do breakfast orange juice or something. <laughs> Smoke our pipes, read to each Ew, other. No. <laughs> so I have some, I have some really sad news to share with y'all. Okay. What's that? Um, well, as longtime listeners know, we have been closely following the uh, saga of mad Mike Hughes, the oh. famous, well now famous flat earther who uh, built a homemade rocket to yeah. launch into the stratosphere uh, actually probably into space so that he could prove once and for all that the earth is flat as we all know it is now last and we heard about him wasn't didn't he have a he had a little accident and where was he on the salt flats or somewhere yeah and and again keep in mind the government had been trying to shut him down right because right. he was launching on because that, he's trying to prove that the earth is not round and there's a conspiracy to protect that's that. right right that's, that's why right. they were shutting him down uh so uh he he launched last week and on Saturday. Uh, so if you're listening to this, it was a week ago, Saturday since when the show was released and, uh, he had a ladder that he climbed up into the rocket in. And when he launched the rocket, it hit the ladder and spun out. And, uh, he did in fact perish. Oh, so rest in peace. Mike Hughes, uh, who now probably knows whether or not the earth is really round. I suppose Um, probably. So, uh, yeah, but he is he is officially deceased, and obviously a lot of the Flat Earth community is legitimately grieving. Again, it's always sad when, when anyone dies. Uh, but, yeah. So how have you looked into how the Flat Earth community is actually responding? Are they like, oh, this was, it was sabotage or something? No, no, it's grief. Apparently with the video and everything, you can see pretty clearly that, like, no, it just hit the ladder and spun out. And, like. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I feel like we suggested this was a potential outcome the last time we talked about this. <laughs> it it does seem that this might be why we have an aeronautics and space administration on a national le- level. Yes. So, uh, yeah, to, to keep these kinds of, th- and I mean, I mean, again, even NASA has famously had some tragedies, right? Uh, right. Apollo one, the challenger disaster. So even with like carefully professionally, crafted uh crafts right like this kind of stuff can happen so um it it is it is the the risk of of trying to do space travel well i mean he was trying to do a public service trying to expose the truth i i just want to say for all our listeners at home please don't try this at home there are (laughs) so many other ways to discover if the earth is round or flat and uh, like uh, none of of us are getting in rockets but i hear math can do it math you can look at the shadow of the earth on the moon (laughs) a variety of ways uh matt i don't i don't know how to tell you this but all shadows are flat hmm hmm I think about that. <laughs> it's too early. 
<laughs> you haven't had your breakfast beer yet? Nope, I have not. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, uh, yeah. So in all seriousness, our condolences go out to Mike Hughes and his family. For sure. Uh, who I'm sure are grieving. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it will be interesting to see if any other flat earthers pick up his mission. And I genuinely do. I Gosh. I genuinely am curious what would happen if a flat earther made it into space and saw that, in fact, the earth is round and they could orbit it. Like, I, I have a suspicion that, like many insular communities, flat earthers are relatively fact proof. So I would just love to see how that would happen. You know, what would happen there? Like how the argument would play out. Yeah, like were they were they, they bought off? Were they corrupted? Right. You know, I mean, just I am <clears throat> genuinely curious. Hmm. Not okay. I will. I would compare them to six day creationists, who like it doesn't <laughs> matter what kind of facts you present. Like their narrative is flexible enough to incorporate those, and you end up with some just like completely outlandish claims. Yeah, please send your to, hate mail to twitter.com slash jrforesteros. That's right. Go ahead. Go ahead, because <laughs> I'm happy to have this conversation. But, I mean, if you've ever been to the Creation Museum, uh, it is not. like it is just bonkers. Like, some of the ways that they concoct to explain observable phenomena such that it fits within their 6,000-year-old Earth theory. I don't know why you have to concoct anything. Why don't you just say... It's supernatural. That's how God did it. Is that not the correct answer? It, it, it surely is not. What? Are you serious? Well, well, I mean, no, for instance, for instance, um, like, I don't know if you've ever seen the illustration of the various uh, stages in the evolution of horse, uh, uh, where it's like the yeah. little, the little itty bitty horse. And then you can like, just see them. Well, those are all based on like actual fossils that we found. Right. So, so creationists have to explain how, we have all of these different sizes and stages of development of horses in a such a compressed time time frame. And at the Creation Museum, the way they explain it, and I am not even exaggerating or lying a little bit, is that God miniaturized some of the animals to fit on the ark and not take up so much space <laughs> and then built in accelerated redevelopment so that in just a few generations awesome. they got back to their normal size. That's like travel size you know, animals. That's, not, that's just not necessary for six day creation is why I'm saying. But but it is because you have to explain why we have these different No, you just say God created a diversity of weird things that were close to horses and a bunch of them went extinct. But that but doesn't why did they go sound... Extinct? Because of the flood, obviously. No. Every... Every kind of animal was on the ark. Yeah, every dinosaurs. kind, but not every like actual little branching bit. But see, that's that's the challenge of these horse fossils, right? Is that they're different enough that they're not just different sizes of horse. They're actually different manifestations of a of a species. So, right? so I think this actually gets us to the topic of our show. <laughs> to be honest, we've been We're talking a lot closer to it about deconstruction, right? The idea that at a certain point in our spiritual lives that we start to take a look at the things we've learned and been told and seen at the museum and whatever, and we start to ask questions. Well, how do you deal with these horse fossils? Uh, and that sometimes as you start looking into it, you realize that the answers you've been given don't match with what you think reality is. And you start to like pull those things apart. For some uh, of us. 
Uh, yeah. Not and it's different things, us. right? Yeah. For different people. For some people, it might be something like creation. For some people, it might be how we interact with another, uh, another group of people, uh, whether it's people of another ethnicity, people of a different gender, people of another orientation. Uh, it, it can be any number of things. It can be uh, dealing with the reality of suffering and what does the church teach versus my experience. Uh, and then what we start to do is we, and it doesn't have to be Christian, right? Other religious people go through this too, is you start pulling it all apart and trying to figure out what do I actually think is the answer. Uh, in this season, what we've been wanting to do is talk uh, a little more about reconstruction. How do you rebuild something valuable after you've taken everything all apart? Uh, and, and I think we're going to kind of focus on that for today's show. Yeah, and you know we are recording on the day of Ash Wednesday. Obviously, at, by the time this episode airs, it will actually be after the first Sunday of Lent. But because we're recording on Ash Wednesday, uh, we thought it would be fun to talk about some specific religious rituals or practices that have been helpful in our reconstruction uh, as we're kind of charting out a new kind of faith for ourselves. And I don't know about y'all, but when I started to think about this question— for me, it, it ended up being a lot of things that I wasn't necessarily raised with that have become meaningful uh, later in my life. Um, and I, I, you know, I don't know that that would be true for someone like my wife who was raised Catholic and was a lot of these practices were present for her, but they just didn't seem to be very full of meaning. And, and so I think she's had a little bit of a different journey, but I, I'm curious kind of as you started to think through that, like what what your relationship with these practices now in your faith is compared to when you were, you know, younger in your faith. So what's, what's the easiest way for us to start into this chair? Should we talk about our histories a little bit or where should we go with that? Uh, yeah, maybe, maybe let's do this. Maybe share a practice that you currently find to be very meaningful in your faith. And then like maybe the history of how you came to that practice and how it's been shaping you. question so here i'll go first let's just reflect on it for like yeah. five to yeah. ten minutes mm. okay so uh, again i have i have a couple lined up but because it is the season of lent right now for me one of them is lent uh i didn't i grew up in the southern baptist church that did not we d we weren't completely devoid of the church calendar like we lit advent candles during the four sundays of advent and had an advent wreath Mm -hmm. uh, in, in our church, like our church did, and we had people read the scripture and all that. We also would do a Good Friday service. We didn't do all of Holy Week. We certainly didn't do Lent, but you know, it wasn't like the only thing we ever did was Sunday mornings. You know, we had we had a, we had like a a couple of pieces of the larger church calendar sort of baked into our 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 year of worship. You had all of the Sundays and one Friday. That's right. Yep. That's right. <laughs> um, <laughs> And, uh, but then when I remember when I got to college, uh, one of my good friends, uh, this is going to sound a little silly, but he was obsessed with ketchup. Like he ate ketchup on everything, but ice cream. And then I noticed one day at lunch that he didn't have any ketchup, like with his French fries. Right. And I asked him about it and he said, Oh, I gave up ketchup for Lent. And I was like, I don't understand what the whole last half of that sentence means. <laughs> like, uh, you know, uh, what do you, and so he, literally I had never heard of Lent before. Uh, I think I had like heard of Ash Wednesday and I remember in high school a couple of times seeing people with the 
the smudges on their foreheads, mm-hmm. but having no context for what that meant at all. Like, I just, you know, super weird to me. And so when he explained everything to me and explained the Lenten fast and all of that, I was really moved by this idea of like choosing to give something up as a way of participating in Christ's sacrifice and as a way of preparing us for Easter. And so I started, I started observing it with him and I had to like Google when Lent starts. Cause I didn't know, I didn't know how long it was. I didn't know it started on Ash. I didn't know anything about it. Right. So I had to do a lot of self-education for that because I, I was at a Southern Baptist university. So certainly we weren't learning about the Christian calendar in, in our classes or anything like that. Uh, and then when, you know, when I was a youth pastor, it was kind of the same thing. Like my students noticed that I was not drinking Dr. Pepper one year and they asked me about it. And so I told them and a lot of them started wanting to do a fast. So it kind of turned into like a youth group thing that we did where we started having an Ash Wednesday thing on a, on a Wednesday before school. Uh, they, you know, these high school and middle school kids would show up at church at like six or six thirty in the morning and we would do a, a small bit of worship and prayer together. And then I would do ashes on their foreheads and they'd go to school and their parents could not believe they were asking to go to church at six in the morning on a Wednesday. But, um, do you, so the ashes, they're just on Wednesday, the first Wednesday of Lent there. You don't correct. do them once a week or and, something. And if if you're if you're really hardcore into the whole church calendar, uh, you burn the palm fronds that were used in last year's Palm Sunday worship, right? Oh. To create the ashes. Wow. Uh, and then you mix them with olive oil, and and then you just do a, a cross on typically on the forehead. Sometimes it could be on the hand. Um. So. And Jr. The, the ashes are meant to be a reminder that we of, all die eventually. Is that right? Yeah. And literally as a consequence of sin, right? Because okay. the, the goal of the season of Lent is to prepare us to celebrate Easter, but in a way by, by reminding us of the cost of good Friday. Right. And so, so the, the, the season of Lent is meant to, to mirror Jesus's 40 days in the wilderness where he fasted and did battle against Satan and battle against temptation and so that's the idea of the fast is we, we give up something that we enjoy. So this is why like people are always like, oh yeah, I gave up cussing for Lent or I gave up complaining for Lent or I gave up, uh, you know, I gave up sweets for Lent cause I'm really trying to cut sweets out of my diet. And I always say like, well, you, <laughs> like if you want to give up complaining or you want to eat healthier, like that's great. But the, the Lenten sacrifice is not meant to be something that you shouldn't be doing that you're trying to have an excuse to get rid of. Like the Lenten fast is meant to be something that you enjoy, that you're choosing to sacrificially give up as like a small way of participating in Christ's sacrifice. Um, so you know, Christ, is, it, is it like a weird personal question to ask people what they've given up for Lent? Or is that typically something you share with the community? Uh, you know, it's interesting because anytime I like I posted this morning on Facebook what I'm get, what I'm doing for Lent this year, and you'll always get a couple of people that are like they'll will post that thing about where Jesus said like when you fast don't be like the Pharisees who trumpet it from the rooftops but like just you know uh, put oil on your head and wear your nice clothes and go out. Um, and th- there's there's that right. You, and you're, you're like if you're, oh, that's ironic because I gave up on trolls for Lent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean if if. Again, it's it's a motivation thing, right? If you're if you're talking about what you're giving up for Lent as a way to look holier, well, then you've already kind of defeated the purpose of the sacrifice. But uh, it can be a really nice way, especially for folks who are not like I got a I got a message from a friend last night who's in a church community that doesn't observe Lent, and she's feeling really drawn to do Lent this year, kind of for the first time ever. So she was asking me a bunch of questions about it, and then she said like, "What do I do if my church doesn't do this?" You know. 
um, will it be as meaningful? And I said, well, probably not, because part of part of the beauty of doing Lent to, is journeying to the cross together. I said, you know, go ahead and reach out on Facebook or reach out to some of your people and your friends and just see if you can build kind of a virtual community of folks. And so I, I have found that sharing my Lenten practice for the year or my Lenten fast for the year can be a way to invite other folks to participate as well. And so, yeah, if you ask someone, they may get weird about it and say like, well, that's personal, which, okay, just apologize and move on. But, you know, a lot of folks like to share because it helps us remember that we're all doing this together. Unless you're giving up social media. (laughs) Everyone who gave up social media for Lent, let everyone know yesterday that they would be gone. Yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, I guess it's, I I actually kind of appreciate it because it's like, well, I haven't seen that person in what, how long is Lent? 40 days or something? Right. Yeah. Six weeks. Yeah. So JR, what did, what are you giving up for Lent? So the last couple of years I have moved away from giving something up exactly and moved into more adding a practice. Oh, and so, so I'm sort of giving up sleep and that my, uh, my commitment is to wake up. (laughs) 30 minutes earlier every day and spend that time reading memoir and theology, Mm. uh, which may surprise people. I don't actually read that most, like the vast majority of my reading is fiction. And so I'm trying to just intentionally immerse myself in the stories of other people. So I'm starting with Chanel Miller's You Will Know My Name. And I have Rachel Dolezal's book on there. I'm finally going to tackle The Cross and the Lynching Tree by James Cohn. So I have some books lined up and my commitment is to read 25 pages a day, which will be about 15 to 20 minutes minimum of reading. Obviously I can do more than that, but that's like my like minimum to do. Uh, So, yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm technically giving up sleep, but I think of it more as like, I'm specifically adding this practice of being really intentional about like, not just diving into my novel, but you know, reading, reading these nonfiction books that I have good intentions to read all the time, but they always end up being backburnered. Wow. Yeah. That's really interesting. And for me, the spiritual benefit of Lent has been, you know, when I was a kid growing up, Easter was that holiday that just sort of like sneaked up on us. Like we'd just be going about our our days and then all of a sudden it's a Friday and we're going to shop for Easter clothes (laughs) and then Easter happens and it's over. Right. (laughs) And Easter is actually our most important holiday. Like, it's more important than Christmas. I love Christmas. I love celebration. I know. I know. But it's, you know, it's it's the high holy day for Christians. And by having six weeks where we're intentionally focusing on it and preparing ourselves for it and filling our – like disrupting our routines with a new practice or a new absence, uh, it really makes – all of Holy Week and then especially Easter Sunday, like way more meaningful. And now the last two churches that I've been a part of have observed Lent together as a church. And it's so fun for me. Almost every year I have a couple of people who will mention at some point, you know, usually right after Easter, that they, like me, grew up in traditions that didn't celebrate Lent and they found Easter so much more meaningful since they've been a part of our church. And again, I, I don't think that's because like we do Easter better than anyone else. I think it's because when we spend six weeks really taking our sinfulness seriously and our need for God, uh, when it comes time to celebrate that God is faithful to meet that need, it becomes much more meaningful, if that makes sense. 
Yeah. Well, that makes absolute sense. So, yeah, so that's that's why I love Lent so much. That's why I really love getting to celebrate it with the church community. And that's not something that I grew up with. That's definitely a practice that has deeply enriched my faith uh, as an adult. So, Did you grow up with fasting? No, not at okay. all. Okay. I mean, like, we have to have read Bible verses about it, right? Because it's, like, all over the Bible. Um, right, but, but that's I don't, not for, like, us now. <laughs> it, it, yeah, it was. It wasn't even like that, right? It wasn't even like they taught. It was just like it was never taught. Mm-hmm. So even when we saw it, because it was never highlighted, we never gave it any importance. You know, right, right. So it was like excluded by, um, by default, I guess. Sure. What about you, Kathy? Well, I grew up. I grew up with fasting, um, but not with the practice of Lent. Certainly not Ash Wednesday. That was like a Catholic thing. Yeah. Um, and so in our community, when I was growing up, uh, there was a significant uh, Catholic population. And so it was very confusing to see that for the first time. I was like, everyone's got us. Like, what, did they not wash their faces? What's going on? <laughs> I know. When you don't know what it is, it is. Yeah. And, you know, you'd have the occasional teacher and you'd be like, this is really just like I'm I'm so distracted what's what's on their forehead um and I don't remember when I actually learned what that was all about I mean it was so far removed from my uh childhood faith experience but I I grew up in a Christian home and I grew up with the practice of fasting my uh my parents would fast on Good Friday and then we would go to church. And so as we were older, we would be invited to fast as well and then go to church on Good Friday. Um, and then Easter. I don't remember buying Easter clothes. <laughs> that wasn't a thing for us. Or Easter baskets. I think we got an Easter basket. I do vaguely remember one year, a little basket with a few jelly beans, which I don't enjoy. <laughs> um, but, uh, there was definitely a lot around fasting and prayer. So I would say I grew up with a generation of when we talk about like prayer warriors, I would say that was my parents and my grandmother. And I know to this day, my parents pray, for me and my sister and their seven grandchildren and Mm. Peter and um, they're getting older. So maybe it's not always at five o'clock in the morning, Mm. but uh, you know, they, they always went to early prayer morning meetings. I don't know why it was always early. That was something that I just never could do. I mean, I tried, (laughs) I am not an early bird, but if you called a prayer meeting at like two p. 2 a.m., I could do it. But something around like between 2 a.m. and like 6 a.m., it just doesn't work for me. Um, so in terms of a practice that I have incorporated in my reconstruction, it actually has been, I would say, um, uh, meditation, which I know people are going to be like, what? Uh, and um <laughs> kind of a rhythm around Sabbath. 
Uh, so the meditation part is really just uh, silent prayer, like being silent and still, which for me and my personality is a challenge. And the stillness part is very hard mentally. So physically, it's not a problem, but mentally to quiet my mind so that I can pay attention and even sit there with God's silence is a challenge. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so um, that has been something that I have uh incorporated in my reconstruction in part because the deconstruction was trying to take away and separate the things that others have told me that I should believe about God mm-hmm. and finding that what there wasn't was um, an honest reckoning with whether or not I could actually hear God. So Matt, when you were talking about your time in London and, um, you know, C.S. Lewis saying that experience of knowing that God was chasing him. Hmm. uh, I know I have had those moments, but particularly in the last few years of sitting in the deconstruction and choosing to take books off my bookshelf. It also has been a need for uh, trying to figure out how do I hear from God? Um, Not alone per se. I'm still trying to find physical Christian community, but in this virtual space, right? Even even our regular rhythm of recording our podcast. How do I build in spaces where I can be in conversation and then sit down and just be quiet before God and see if God has anything to say? And if there's nothing, that's okay. But just that practice of being quiet. And then uh, the other practice is not a strict Sabbath so that there isn't this, you know, like I can't do X, Y, and Z around uh, my Sunday, which is when I practice that Sabbath. But um, especially this last year, having left uh, vocational ministry and finding my schedule a little more open, Sunday nights for me have become kind of uh, meal prep nights. So the work is still there, but for me, it is also quite meditative. Like there's nothing quite like chopping pounds and pounds of vegetables (laughs) (laughs) Uh, to uh, kind of put myself in a different space. And, um, you know, I did not grow up wanting to be a mom or a wife. (laughs) I did not grow up wanting to, I didn't really have a nurturing side of me. (laughs) (laughs) That just wasn't there. Um, But in this season where I have more time and headspace, uh, I have found that practice to be really important for me to pull myself out of the selfishness that I can feel during this time, which is like, this is me time. I'm going to find my, you know, my second career. And how do I invest in myself now that I'm about to be an empty nester? really just rooting myself and saying, 
how can I love on my family with healthy, nutritious, often convenient food <laughs> that's prepared? Um, because Peter and Elias wake up before I do. Like I don't, I don't wake up with them <laughs> in the morning, but it's nice to have prepared things that they can just take out. So Sunday nights is that practice of just like chopping and cooking and filling the refrigerator um, knowing that I'm doing this out of love mm. um, has been a really good grounding practice for me um, to also feed into that space where I have to learn to be unselfish because I can be pretty selfish and uh, convenient around my schedule. And so that's been two of the things that I have kind of built into my life in this reconstruction process. That's really beautiful. Thank you for mm -hmm. sharing that. How about you, Matt? Um, I think for me, one of the key deconstructions was realizing that what I had been taught the Bible is, uh, does not reflect what the Bible says about itself which uh, JR and I have talked about this in the past, I think even on this show, that there's a sense that I grew up in these pretty fundamentalist uh, Baptist churches and schools. Actually, I went to Christian school most of my life. Uh, and one of the things they taught was a really high regard and respect for the scriptures, which I'm deeply thankful for. Uh, but one of the things I recognize, part of my deconstruction, was recognizing that the Bible didn't function in the way I had been taught by these same people. Uh, that uh, what intentionally or not, what was sometimes taught was not that the Bible is uh, a way that God communicates with you, but a way that God communicated with us once upon a time, mm -hmm. and that it doesn't—it's static, and that it's settled. Mm. Um, which even you know is really interesting. So, so this like dramatic moment for me was when I was reading in context, the verse about the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two edged sword, which I've been taught all my life was about the Bible. And I had this like shocking moment where I realized that in context, it's not talking about the scriptures. It's talking about all the ways God communicates with us. Uh, and I was like, how can this be? And that really broke it open. That started the deconstruction, that moment. Uh, and I realized that a lot of the things I was doing, I, I didn't have these words for it at the time, but what I came to was recognizing that I'd essentially been using the Bible as one, as a uh, prescriptive sort of, here's what you should be if you're a Christian, like book of law. And two is a magic book that if I spent time every day reading a little bit, that my life would be better, like magically, right? You won't get a flat tire because you did your devotional, like literally in high school, I would think things like that. Mm -hmm. um, not, not consciously. It'd be like, I'd get a flat tire and go like, oh no, did I do my devotional today? Like that, which is absolutely magical thinking. It has nothing to do with the Bible or how it works. Um. So part of the deconstruction for me 
was recognizing the legalistic tendencies I had to, I'm not a particularly disciplined person, uh, but I was on this topic, read my Bible, pray every day, right? And recognizing that that wasn't discipline, that wasn't because I was being God honoring, it's because I thought that if I didn't do that, I'd be punished. Uh, yeah. So anyway, part of my deconstruction was moving away from the daily devotional, which I'm guessing for some in our audience right now sounds really creepy and weird and that's okay. Um, and recognizing what I didn't know this at the time, but what I was moving into was more of an Ignatian kind of Jesuit way of looking at things. Uh, which when I discovered that I was like, Oh, this is what I'm doing. So Ignatius really pushed <laughs> the people around him to say, if God is everywhere and always speaking to us, then why are we locked away in the seminaries and why are we only speaking in pulpits? And he started pushing them out into the world. He's like, I want you talking about literature. I want you learning from art. I want you to see God in nature. And it was this idea of opening up to the presence and communication of God in other places and in other ways. Uh, and that was part of my reconstruction was this recognition that instead of, uh, not necessarily instead of, but at least for a time in place of this idea of the daily devotional, what I needed was to become aware of the presence and communication of God in my daily life. Um, and that, that began with things like a lot of it was about prayer, actually. Mm -hmm. So it was about praying and saying, God, if you are speaking to me, help me to hear you. Mm -hmm. uh, and that can be in nature. It could be in a movie. It often was for me in stories, uh, novels, even comic books, uh, movies that I'd be like, oh, I, that is something I would sense in my heart. That's, there's a message there that's important for me where I am. And uh, over time, part of the reconstruction was reintegrating scripture as well, because I still believe scripture is the place we most consistently are promised that God will speak uh, and, and that we can trust that even on days when we're not hearing clearly from God in scripture, there's still a great deal of wisdom, obviously, in it and truth. Uh, and now, instead of a daily devotional, what I often do is, uh, well, and this is the other piece I should mention is that because of where I grew up in the faith, the idea of the Bible, the Bible was not safe outside of its exact parameters, meaning you needed wise counselors to tell you what it meant. You shouldn't be asking questions and digging into things on your own. So you needed a, you needed a, like, a like a priest, right? Yeah, we never use that language, right? Yeah, but it, no. you needed commentaries, you needed pastors, you needed wise people to keep you on the right path, uh, which is why there was danger in questions. And what I realized was, uh, actually, that was not me hearing from God. That was me hearing from these sort of like priest-like uh, presences who were being intermediaries. They were telling me what God meant instead of me hearing from God. So as I started moving back into it, I, it's still not daily, but as I was moving back into regular time and scripture, what I realized is I needed to start with hearing from God 
and let commentaries and, and those sorts of things come later that, uh, which I did the opposite before I'd start with the commentary. So I understood what I was reading. Right. And now I read and I pray and I listen to hear what God is saying to me. And then I go to make sure I'm not like completely misunderstanding something obvious, right. From wise people who've gone before us. Uh, so that's a, if you boiled it all down, I think the big change was from the daily devotional. Uh, so that was kind of deconstructed into what I think probably we would call listening prayer, uh, which does not require scripture, although scripture is a, a really uh, easy tool to use with listening prayer and one I use consistently, uh, just not daily. So, yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I love the idea. I mean, I, I grew up similarly. The The Bible was important, but it always had to be interpreted for me. Right. Right. So even though that the daily quiet time was also emphasized, which is interesting, right? It's the both and. So you should be in the word daily. And for some reason, it was always like you should do it in the morning. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> right after your um, 5 a.m. prayer time. Right, right. Like, uh, and I, I personally find that it's better for me to read at night and then I go to sleep dwelling on it. So, so there, so much for the early morning, but (laughs) right. And you never know, God might speak to you in your dreams. That happened a lot in the Bible. What? What? I know the magic Bible, but also the, uh, the idea that it was static, right? So that it's, much like much like my parents experience with culture like it's frozen in time right and it doesn't evolve in the same way had they been in korea i feel like that was my experience with scripture for a long time was right. that this is really important and these are the ways you do it yeah <laughs> right every morning and you should try to get through it in a year <laughs> <laughs> right. All of these rules, all of these rules. That's right. The word of God is static and frozen. It says in 365 it says, days. I right? believe it. And that settles it. Right. And you should do it in 365 days every year, like a good Christian. Yep. And then it only says these things. So then, so at some point for me, the deconstruction was also, then if it's the same thing, how do you like, there's a repeat at some point. No. Yeah. <laughs> right. There's For like sure. a finite understanding that we can gather from scripture. If it is a static document, as opposed to, you know, the, the phrase living word. Yeah. So that's what I've really come in my, where I am right now today to think of the scripture not even as a book, but as a place where God promises to meet with me. Mm. And that that's a pretty radical difference than what I understood at least to be told me, told to me Mm -hmm. when I was a child by my various Mm -hmm. teachers. Um, and it's really altered in a positive way. My, my spiritual life, I feel like, like it's much more networked with God and much less about the religious communities understanding of 
what, not, not that I'm against that. Do you know what I mean? Right. But that I, I feel closer to God as a result. Um, yeah, the other, the other kind of ritual that I wanted to touch on for myself is actually really similar to what we've just been talking about. And it's very recent. I would say within the last couple of years, it's a practice that my spiritual director introduced me to, um, the, she called imaginative prayer, but it's, it's a way of reading with scripture that challenges both what I think scripture is and what I think prayer is where she, she told me to in praying with a text to actually pray myself and imagine myself into the story of the text. So if I'm praying with Jesus stilling the storm, I need to imagine myself in the boat with the disciples. And then once I'm in there to actually, it's to actually like interact in the scene. Don't just be a passive observer, but to interrupt, ask Jesus questions, ask the disciples questions. And in that imaginative way, like listen, listen for what um, God might be saying, which is so interesting because when people first hear it, they're like, oh, that sounds like really dangerous or like you're imposing your own ideas on the text or blah, blah, blah. But when you break it right down, it's exactly like what everyone says to do when you're praying, which is listen for what God is saying. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's a sense in which you're, I'm doing that. It's just in a way that's like more interwoven into the scripture where I, where I'm really interrogating like more of the emotion and the spirit of, of a text than just the sort of like surface level narrative of it, if that makes sense. Sure. And that's really, I don't know. It's been really good for me. It's made scripture come alive in a way that I have not considered before. It's changed even like my preaching uh, and my thinking about the text. And it's it's been really fun as I've introduced this idea to some of my church folk. Because, um, again, especially some of those who come from more conservative backgrounds, like it's a very challenging idea for them. You know, they feel like they just can't get past that idea of what you were talking about, Matt, like that that's not what the Bible is for. Or that's not what it does. Right. It's static. God said it and that settles it. And we're not supposed to mess with it. Right. Which, again, is not how the Bible describes itself, which is so fascinating that. Yeah, we've bought it. Exactly that. right. And, and it's it's certainly not at all how we see, especially the New Testament authors messing with narratives from their canon of scripture that was actually really helpful for me was looking at how jewish commentators interact with scripture and it's a much more playful interactive imaginative uh question asking kind of like what does this possibly mean and it definitely like eli you know our, our rabbi friend when we've had him on before he's like okay we can legislate too like we can you know, parse out all the law to these tiny, tiny little things, but it is this more, um, I mean, it's communal too, which is interesting. It actually reminds me of those inkling gatherings that you were talking about huh. where, um, they sit around and argue and, and it's not like, it's not like Matt shares his opinion and we're all like, Oh, Oh good. And then Kathy shares her reading and we're all like, Hmm, brilliant. And then I share mine. And everyone's like, Oh, so good. Like Matt will say something and we'll both be like, that's so dumb. Like, what kind of idiot could possibly think of that as a legitimate interpretation of this text? You <laughs> that know? sounds like our and, podcast. Well, that's it, right? But it's like it's like I, I, I've I've had some friends who have you know attended dinners that were uh, you know a bunch of of you know Jewish friends eating together, and they're like they sit around and fight the whole night, 
And then at the end of the meal, they get up and it's time to go home and they're all laughing and hugging and talking about how much fun they had and how they have to do this again soon. But you're showing you know? respect like, by, by saying what you truly think. Well, you're and engaging with each other, right? It's bringing your whole self, but also inviting others to challenge you to go deeper. Mm. That's right. right? Do Asking I care, questions. Do I care about you enough to respect your ideas seriously, seriously enough to disagree with them? You know, I, I'm thinking about like with my background, even when I was sharing, you probably caught me saying some things where it was pretty clear that I'm like, okay, I feel a little nervous that you're going mm-hmm. like, oh, Matt doesn't do a daily devotional. Uh, like internally, there's still some of that, even though I've discovered this other thing is so much healthier for me. And I think for the listeners, depending on where you are, you might be right now going like, okay, I need to start doing Ash Wednesday and I need to do listening prayer. I need to do all these things. Right. But I think the point is all three of us shared different things here. Uh, I, I can't, I have not found Lent a helpful practice for me personally. I'm not in a community that practices it. And when I do it by myself, it devolves into legalism. It is not the beautiful thing JR is talking about when I do it. Uh, and that's okay. It doesn't mean I can't grow into it, right? But where I am right now, it's not a practice that helps me reconstruct. Uh, and, and that is not bad. And finding the thing that helps each of us reconstruct uh, is valuable. But we don't need to feel guilty for not doing what all the other people are doing. Right, right. Because that's part of why I think we all entered into a time of deconstruction was that I think it's safe to say for all three of us, there were, there were a list of things, do's and don'ts, right? Good Christians do X. Good Christians do a daily quiet time. And it looks like this every day at 730 in the morning. (laughs) Um. I, it would be curious. I mean, listeners, uh, let us know. Do you do you still do a daily quiet time? Where are you in terms of the practices that you grew up with? Um, do you still do them? New practices? Or have you found those old practices take on a different meaning um, for you? Because Matt, like you, I don't, I don't do a daily quiet time in that way. But I do engage daily with God and scripture in a different way. And I think that that has brought, um, it's brought freedom and creativity and a deeper sense of um, God's beauty. And also in a lot of ways, a longing also then to go back to scripture. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. I was, I was in a, I was in a meeting yesterday and we did a very brief Bible study together and it was so good to be in scripture with people I didn't know, Mm. um, trusting that we all had a respect for what scripture was saying and then listening to what other people saw or how they interpreted that particular part of scripture. So it, it feels different for me. It's no longer a, there's no longer a sense of drudgery, Mm. if that makes sense. But this, it, it, I really do expect every time when I engage with scripture, God is going to meet me, maybe not in the ways I thought or was taught. 
you know, it isn't a like, Kathy, you are doing this wrong or two you're, stars. You're for going you to scripture because you have a desire to be connected and with the Lord, which is really mm -hmm. different than it's five thirty. It's time. It's time. Yeah. You know, and again, I think there is a place for that. There's a place for that kind of discipline for sure. Right. And, um, and I, I miss and long for the practice and discipline of the Sunday going to church rhythm and mm. ritual. Mm. Um, and I think that there will, I expect that there will be a time and place when that comes back. But right now that's not the way we have it. Well, I think that that's the other thing. Like, it'd be really easy to listen to what we're saying and go like, uh, oh, Matt says daily devotionals are bad. And that's not true. Uh, the way daily devotionals became a thing is that it is useful and beautiful tool that some people have used to grow in their spiritual lives. But someone at some point said, uh, oh, let's, let's create this to be a legalistic thing you must do, right. which, you know, cause, cause they're looking at David and saying, you know, he's meditating on the law of the Lord day and night. So we should do that too. But David, <laughs> and that's not a, that's not a poetic celebration of scripture that's literal. You know, David was saying he passionately loves it and wants to spend time in it. So we're like, I guess you better also, um, having said that, if you're the type of person that that kind of discipline is helpful or that, that, uh, regularity in your life or that rhythm or what, for whatever reason, uh, causes you to be in a better place spiritually or to connect with God better, or to be a better person, to be more disciplined, that that's wonderful. That's great. So uh, our, I guess all that to say, our disciplines don't have to match up uh, because discipline is about the issues that we each have individually or about our communities. Right. Um, strength training is a similar thing, right? If you go to a trainer at a gym and they just have a single training thing that every single person has to do, you should go somewhere else because everyone's body is different. Everyone's needs are different. And what works for one person is actually could possibly be harmful to someone else. Mm. And I think spiritual practices are the same way. Like, uh, this is a relationship that we have with God. It's highly individualized. And that's why, like, when people ask me, what should I do to grow my faith? I'm like, I don't know. Like, why don't we have a conversation and talk about where you are? And I'll offer you a few suggestions, but really, you've just got to keep trying it until you find something that works because, you know, everyone's different. Yeah. Um, could I ask one, uh, we can cut this out if it doesn't go anywhere, but, and, and I'll open myself up. I feel free to comment on or ask me after I do this, but, um, Kathy, I wondered, you know, we've talked about a lot of practices that have come from inside of the Christian tradition that have been helpful in our reconstruction, mm -hmm. but I have the sense in knowing you that yoga has been a really helpful part of your reconstruction. Um, and if I'm wrong, again, feel free to correct me and we'll just have Aaron cut this out, but would you if that if it has been, would you talk for a couple of moments about that? Oh yeah, it definitely has been um, important. Continues to be important. Um, I came into that into the practice of yoga <clears throat> a couple of years ago, uh, really by accident. It was like a slot at the gym where I was taking another class, <laughs> and then that class got replaced with yoga. <laughs> And it was just like, oh, well, this is a time of day where I go to the gym. So this, is, this I guess, is what I'm going to do. And I found it super challenging. It's not because of the flexibility thing or any of it. It really was this exercise of like quieting your mind 
And for the listeners who think you know me, you probably do. (laughs) My mind is very loud. (laughs) And uh, I'm type A. And so there's a lot going on mentally, spiritually, and physically that is fighting internally at any given moment. And the practice of yoga is a lot like prayer, um, where uh, you're supposed to quiet your mind, still your body, pay attention to what's going on inside. And I know, I know, be having grown up in the church, a lot of teaching around the dangers and evils of yoga, and it's opening me up to all sorts of demons and all that kind of stuff. Um, for me, it's actually drawn me a lot closer to God and deepened my prayer practice, um, in part because I have to quiet my mind and also be very aware of what's going on in my body. So I think that's also the thing that I found growing up in the church. I, it, we're very dis, disembodied, disconnected with the physical things. And so, you know, I haven't always practiced a Lenten fast, but having grown up fasting, there's that part of like uh, giving up something that you enjoy and also uh, keeping food and drink away from your body so that you recognize how fragile your body is, but also your dependence on God. And um, for me, there is a lot of that in the practice of yoga in terms of just being aware of like where I'm holding my tension or my stress and my anger. It's always in my shoulders and in my neck. And so uh, when I, you know, when I speak like a yoga instructor, when I go to my mat and I'm there every day, it is my daily quiet time. And it is paying attention to how I've been carrying what's going on in my body and in my day and releasing it and giving it up. And it has been a wonderful thing. And then to to become a teacher too, I think that that has been part of the the reconstruction and in finding a different place to invite others into healing. And I don't, you know, I don't, mix in Christian music with my yoga. (laughs) I don't rename poses to Christian things, Um, but it has been fun. Is that a thing people do? Oh, it's a thing. Matt. It's a thing. Like, can you give me an example of the original name and the Christian name? (laughs) Matt, did you catch that? No, I missed it. JR. Downward downward Balaam's donkey is that one? (laughs) Oh, <laughs> makes sense. Um, I don't know the like the Christianized names of poses, but I bet I know, Google does. Yeah, Google does. So you could probably Google it. Christian yoga. Google right, Christian I'm yoga. Doing it right now, it's a, I'm sorry. Whole, I gotta know. You gotta know. It's a whole thing, right? And um, and it's so interesting because there's so many things around that. I understand there's a connection 
spiritually that is outside of Western mm. Christianity? Did you find it? <laughs> well, I found the cover of a book called Praise Moves, yes. The Christian Alternative to Yoga. Yes. Yes. Basic steps to godly fitness. Yes. Yes. I mean, if it's helpful yeah. for other people, right? Um, you're saying you don't find that necessary though, right? <laughs> yeah, no, I don't find it necessary. Um, in part because I think it's, um, it's our over-dependence on an inner circle language and a fear that I think we've all been taught having grown up in some conservative spaces of what's outside the church, capital C, lowercase C. And, um, and we forget that God has it, the beauty and goodness in the world. That is all God. <laughs> that is all God. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yoga is definitely that place. Uh, occasionally I will have um, a student say like, Hey, I've, found you. <laughs> you wrote a book. Like, mm -hmm, I did. Have you read it? <laughs> Once you read it, I'd love to talk to you about what you thought. And so those, those have been really great conversations. Hmm. We're going to do a full episode on yoga one day. And the opening game will be you giving the three of us yoga poses. And then whoever mm -hmm. can come up with the best Christian name wins. Okay. <laughs> That'll be part of our 24 hour podcast fundraiser Perfect. that we're going to do one day. Um, That'll be an hour eight. Yeah, Matt, are there any are there any thing practices you've noticed in Kathy and I's lives that you would be interested in kind of interrogating or questioning? Not interrogating. That sounds aggressive. But well, we can be aggressive. We're friends. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Right. Even though We've I've never met. Beer. Yeah. Even though I've never met Matt in person yeah we're still kathy you're one of my better friends given that we've never met <laughs> pretty nuts <laughs> um yeah i you know it's funny and i don't know if there's jet lag but i'm actually having a hard time compartmentalizing christian versus non-christian practice in the lives that i see you guys living uh and in my own life too like i'm thinking like even yoga, I'm like, well, I get that it comes from a non-Christian, I, I mean, an alt, another religion, actually, uh, background, but it doesn't feel like it's anti-Christian to me. Um, so maybe I'm, I'm having trouble with the categorization. It's like, definitely the jet lag. <laughs> that and then, you know, you were, you were in, you were in the, like, you are with the colonizers, so I am with the colonizers. <laughs> I I've got a tattoo that says Team Colonizer right on me. TC. Kathy, my people weren't even in the United States at that time. <laughs> um Well, JR, I mean, this is one we've talked about a lot, but I do think your immersion in horror culture is something that is really hard for people to wrap their minds around it as a spiritual thing. But when I talk to you, it certainly seems to be a spiritual thing. Okay, sure. Um, when you say wrap their minds around it as a spiritual thing, you mean a positive spiritual thing, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, for sure. For sure. Because um, much like well, Kathy and so, Kathy and the yoga demons, so I would say I would say okay if I had never spoken to you before and I heard oh there's this pastor that really really loves horror movies, 
I'd be like, okay, horror movies are pretty much all rated R, largely because of uh, extreme disgusting violence, uh, nudity, sex, uh, uh, demonic, like not just like maybe it's demonic, but actually demonic imagery uh, and characters, um, depending on the type of horror, right? Uh, so you're telling me a Christian is wading into that, not as like a light in the darkness, but like, I feel like I get a spiritual connection from this. I'm skeptical. Yeah. Uh, so f- I think it's interesting in that my, my love affair with horror has actually matured <laughs> in some, some in the same ways as my love with, for Jesus in that, you know, when I was a kid, I think I was like six when I saw the original Ghostbusters. My parents rented it on VHS and we watched it at home. And when uh, when Dana and Rick Moranis turned into the demon dogs, I like hid behind my dad. And he was like, you scared, buddy? And I was like, no, I, you know, I just tried to make up like a tough excuse. But um, there was a there was an old TV show called Werewolf about this college guy that got bitten by a werewolf and turned into a werewolf. And then the whole show was him like trying to kill the werewolf that turned him dude so that i remember that show free. didn't he have a pentagram on his hand and and anytime he turned <laughs> Literal like that Satan. was yeah that was that was how but it, but but it was bad right like he didn't want it and it was a sign of his of his infection you know um yeah and my dad and i would watch it every week apparently it's not good people that watch it remember it uh in adulthood are saying there's a reason you can't find it anywhere it's on, it's right you know, up there with manimal do you remember that show? Right. Oh my goodness. Um, so, I mean, again, from a, from a young age, like I, I saved my allowance up to go buy goosebumps books and bought them like every month, regular as clockwork. I had like the first 50 of them before I finally quit buying them. Um, so yeah, I mean, I've always loved horror, but never really could tell you why much in the same way. Again, I was just raised in church and always loved Jesus and, you know, didn't have a dramatic conversion story. I just, you know, enough people who loved me told me that God loved me and wanted to be in a relationship with me that I believed them and asked for that, you know? And so I, I don't know that I could pinpoint exactly when it was, but I started to notice that a lot of horror movies had a lot more going on in them than just, you know, thrills and chills. Uh, they seem to be saying something about reality. Uh, the Ring, for instance, which is still one of my favorite horror movies and the most scared I've been in a movie theater and after a movie theater of all time, uh, is really about our addiction to screens. And this was before the rise of cell phones and smartphones. Mm. Um, it, it's really about what happens when that stuff gets inside us and how we pass it from person to person. Uh, you know, the original, the, the, the whole slasher genre, which I could go on about for hours is really about, um, how our society is trying to make sense of sexual ethics in the wake of the sexual revolution of the sixties. Uh, and all of the, if you just follow like how slasher movies have changed over the years, you can chart it out with changes in our cultural's understanding of sexual ethics, like all the way up to the, the Halloween movie that came out a couple years ago, uh, the, like the, the reboot. And so I've, I've come to understand that horror films, uh, do two things. One, I think they're a tremendous diagnostic tool to talk about what 
our culture is thinking about and, you know, what scares us, which is always a good indication of what we really love too. Um, And so I I value them in that sense. I think there's, because they're so splattertastic, most people will sort of let the, let their guard down and, and, and enjoy things at a level that lets you get a window into what's really going on inside of them. And I think, you know, diagnosing our culture, horror is super helpful for that. So one, I just enjoy it as a conversation with what's going on in our culture. Again, I wrote an essay about the new, the Halloween movie a couple of years ago that talked about like, how do you, t- how do you make a slasher movie in the me too era? You know, and this was not very long after that, after Kavanaugh was confirmed and all this kind of stuff. So that movie had a ton to say about that drawing on the whole history of slashers. And I think the better, you know, horror, the better you understood what that movie was saying and offering some really helpful critiques of what's going on in our culture today. Uh, the other thing that I just genuinely love about horror movies is that nine times out of 10, uh, horror movies actually have a really good message. Like there's a movie called satanic panic that came out uh, late last year. That was a tremendous amount of fun. And it was about a, a delivery driver, uh, poor, like, you know, barely scraping by pizza delivery driver who takes a pizza to, uh, or takes a, you know, an order of pizzas to this wealthy suburb. They don't tip her. And so she goes back to the house and tries to demand that, uh, that they, you know, at least give her something. Cause she drove all the way out here and walks in, in the middle of a satanic ritual. And so the whole thing is, you know, now they're trying to kill her and all this stuff, but not to spoil overly the end of the movie, the, the message of the movie was, it's probably not a good idea to make a deal with demons because, you know, they're evil and they're going to get the upper hand. And I was like, I mean, that's right. (laughs) 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 Like, 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 that's true. You shouldn't do that. You know? And it's, it's, it's hard to find a film about the demonic that paints the demonic in a positive light, you know, that says like, Oh, maybe demons are okay. And they, you know, maybe they do want what's best for you. So, (laughs) which I know Matt, you had a similar conversation around what film was it? Oh, uh, ready or not. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. (laughs) Which again was an amazing movie about how if you have a historic deal with the devil that is in uh, major family wealthy, maybe it's not for the best. (laughs) <laughs> right. So what you're saying, JR, is that it's filth, but you like it. Is that what I'm hearing? Seems like that was a pretty good summation. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, again, I also tell people this all the time, much like our conversation about daily, daily devotionals. I'm not a pusher. I know people that just can't handle horror. And I'm like, okay, don't watch it then. You right. know, um, if you find it useful, use it. If you don't, don't use it. Mm-hmm. You know? Right. Um, and there's a lot of conversation right now around fasting for Lent, right? So um, eating disorders. Mm. Mm. Um, and so a lot of the, like, there are a lot of um, short posts. I've seen it on Twitter, too, in terms of, you know, it's it's a helpful practice, the sense of giving up and the, the idea of sacrificing something. But the emphasis around um, fasting from food or certain types of food is actually not helpful understanding the things that certain people are going through. And so, you know, JR, I've never seen you as a pusher um, in terms of the horror, but I have a deep respect because you understand the genre. And I think that's the difference. 
is that people who are often going to see that that external, like there's this pastor who really likes horror, I don't get it, is one, they don't have a respect for the genre. And so they're not going to ask the question. Yeah. Right? They're just going to dismiss you. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's like any kind of literature, right? Like mm-hmm. you can you can read it for enjoyment as a way right. to shut off your brain and escape for a little while, which there's nothing wrong with that. Right. I mean, we all have times that we just kind of want to like veg out, you know, mm-hmm. um, that's why I enjoy Lego Masters on TV right now, because it's just empty calories that are delicious and it lasts 45 minutes. <laughs> um, but for anything especially anything that's resonating enough that it's become popular, we can ask those deeper questions and we can engage it in a conversation, right? Not just let it wash over us. And so if people want to do that, I think there's always something to find in anything that resonates. Um, But you don't have to do that. And if people don't want to do that, well, why would I try to force them to? Right. That's good. So anyway, well, that's a. Uh, I think that's about it for today. Yeah. Any other final? Th- I guess we should do what's fascinating us, right? Yeah. yeah. That's a good mega episode. We're we're trying to give you guys, get you guys in the discipline of these hour and a half podcasts, so you'll be ready <laughs> right. when we do our twenty four so hour version. Sorry for the bonus content. Yeah. So, uh, Kathy, what's fascinating you this week? Uh, okay. So I um. I want to be fascinated and I am fascinated. I just have not watched a lot of K dramas mm. uh, for being a Korean American. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> um, and I finished one a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Romance is a bonus novel, I think. And it was just sappy and, you know, like grossly cute and, Everyone in it is just gorgeous and makeup is flawless. And I'm so, you know, the fashion is amazing and the purses and (laughs) all of that visual eye candy. And, but what I enjoyed about it was uh, how much I could watch the show with it just playing in the background of my day and be able to understand it without reading the subtitles. And so if any listeners are big K-drama folk and have recommendations, send them my way, because this is going to be my language immersion project uh, to relearn my mother tongue. Wow. And yeah, so it was super fun because there were things where I'd be like, I was just listening to the to or you know the the show was playing in the background and I wasn't sitting so that's the hard thing right subtitles you have to read them uh-huh. but to just have it play in the background and be like oh I caught that I didn't know I you know I don't understand exactly what was being said but I caught enough of the plot line to figure out like oh they like each other <laughs> <laughs> here comes the twist. I bet he's the son, you know, so that kind of stuff. Um, so that is what's fascinating for me, how I'm going to learn, relearn my mother tongue. Kathy, have you, have you watched boys over flowers? Do you know this one? No, I do know that one. And it's, it's an older one. Um, it's been around. It was around. Yeah, it's based, it, it's actually, it was ago. a Japanese, I think it was a Japanese comic to start. There was a Chinese series that was like huge 
in China, and then they made a Japanese and a Korean TV series K- drama. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, when I was I'll in, when it. I lived uh, in Asia, the Chinese version, which was called Meteor Garden, was gigantic. Like everyone was talking about it. So, anyway, I haven't seen the Korean version yet. Oh, you haven't? Okay, no. well, I'm putting it on my queue right now. Uh, Matt, what about you? Okay, get ready because this is going to sound weird, but this is an amazing book that, uh, you know, we're talking about finding spiritual things in other places. This this book, this is true for me. So uh, it's by a guy named John Crowley, who's won a bunch of awards uh, in the fantasy uh, uh, fantasy community. So the World Fantasy Award, I think he's maybe won it three times. Uh, But this book is called, and I will walk you through the title here, but the book is called Ka, Dar Oakley in the Ruin of Emer. (laughs) Which sounds like nonsense. Wow. Um, Wait, what is Ka? (laughs) It's... It's going to sound worse in a minute too. So the story, this story is about a crow named Dar Oakley. uh, And it starts basically in the very, very dawn of humanity. And the story goes all the way through to about the end of a post-apocalyptic world. Like imagine us, if nothing changes in 50 years, like that's where it ends. Um, (laughs) And the story goes through all these really interesting places and it's all, it's about story. It's about dreams. It's about death and life and what it is and how it works. So this crow goes with a a holy person toward the dawn of humanity to try and find the most precious thing that will keep humans from dying ever. And the crow steals it uh, and then feels bad about it, but can't find it again. So the crow keeps living forever, basically. And if he dies, he's essentially reincarnated as a crow again. Uh, But he has these really astonishing, beautiful interactions with humanity along the way. And the whole book is really about him trying to understand human beings and understand death. Uh, And it's just gorgeous. And spiritually, uh, it was a book that I just felt like I was having really profound deep interactions about important things as I was reading it. Uh, and even if, if that's a stretch for you, like this sort of thing, there is a huge chunk of this book that actually takes place in, in a medieval setting where Dar Oakley becomes friends with a, a medieval priest, uh, actually a saint that you'll know their name once you get into the story a bit, but yeah, just a beautiful book. Uh, Ka is what crows call themselves, as you might expect. Dar Oakley is his name. And Emer is the, uh, kind of the provenance of humanity, the, the world of human beings. So it's called Ka, Dar Oakley in the Ruin of Emer. And it's written by John Crowley. And I, I would recommend it literally to anyone. Beautiful book. Hmm. Uh, how That's about, awesome. how about you, uh, JR? Well, I have been listening to a new album while I have been working this week called The Lost Voices of Hagia Sophia. Oh. Oh, yes. So the Hagia Sophia is an ancient church in Istanbul, which, as we know, was once Constantinople. Yep. I've been there. And when you have, have you, Kathy? No. 
I have not either. Oh, it's amazing. So, you should go if you get a chance. Tell us about how great it is, Matt. Do you, do you want to know? Yes. Um, so this church, it's an ancient <laughs> church. It's one of the oldest, like still standing Christian churches. It's gorgeous. Uh, as an American, it's very strange because like sitting outside, there'll be, uh, there's a stone, what was a pulpit from like, I don't know. I think it was, I want to say 800 AD there. It's very early. Some of the stuff. And literally there was a dude sitting on it, eating his lunch. You know, you can just walk up and touch these things. <laughs> Um, at a, at a certain point, the church, uh, as you know, this area was contested, uh, Muslims came in and took it over, turned it into a mosque and they like painted over all of the, uh, mosaics and paintings of Christ. Uh, but you can still see evidence of it in different places. And then when Turkey became a secular Republic, they came through and actually revealed some of those things. Uh, so they kept some of the aspects that made it a mosque, some of the things that made it a historic church, and then they turned it into a museum more or less, but it's, it's beautiful, amazing place with enormous history for Christians and Muslims alike. That's awesome. Well, uh, since it was taken over by Muslims, it has not been functioning as a church. And today it's basically a museum, right? Right. So, um, but it was an, it was, it was an Orthodox church and, uh, apparently when you pop a balloon, the sound that a balloon makes is so sharp that if you record it, it gives you a pretty good acoustical map of the room. And so a scientist convinced the museum to let her in after hours and spend five days popping balloons all over through the space and recording. Huh. And then she ran a Greek Orthodox, I think they're actually Romanian, but they're singing these like 13th century Greek Orthodox chants. And then she created a filter that you can put just through a sound editing program that will make any sound sound like it would have sounded if it was performed in the Hagia Sophia. Amazing. And yeah. so we are essentially getting what it would have sounded like if you're sitting in, you know, the 1200s in the Hagia Sophia attending a mass. Wow. And they put out an entire album worth of the work. So it's called The Lost Voices of Hagia Sophia by Capella Romana. Um, and it it's genuinely beautiful. It sounds like honestly for me at least as a as a 21st century white westerner it sounds like very otherworldly in a in the most huh. captivating way it's all a cappella and it's just beautiful i just want to say that's way better than that dumb egyptian priest thing you tried to get us excited about i don't know i still don't know why you're not excited about that because we're going to get to hear one day egyptian like ancient egyptians speaking full paragraphs in their own voices Man. and <laughs> uh, that was mature i know i know uh, so anyway yeah that's what i'm into this week again i i literally have it paused right now uh for when we're hopping off the call and resuming our, our work i'm gonna put it back on awesome. it, it's just incredible have you listened to much of it kathy i have listened to a little bit of it but i knew exactly what you were talking about and just the i the science behind trying to recreate the sound was so fascinating. Amazing, the, right? Yeah, like just right, the incredible. popping of balloons. <laughs> it's such a Amazing. smart idea. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, uh, it was. It was. It was so cool. So, 
um, I, I, w- I was I was really amazed. And again, I can't wait to see what what comes of this, you know, down the road. Um, I think it's just it's a really cool thing. So. Uh, well, that's our episode for today. Obviously, we would love to know what you are into as well. Uh, let us know at thefascinatingpodcast.com or facebook.com slash thefascinatingpodcast. Uh, in the next couple of weeks, uh, we, it's either going to be the next episode or the episode after, we are going to be interviewing a woman named Katrina Jenkins who recently edited a book called The Theology of Prince. And so we're going to be talking about Prince, the artist, uh, the artist once and then again known as Prince. And uh, and then how because if, if people don't know, Prince was a uh, devout Jehovah's Witness. He, he was born Seventh-day Adventist and converted to Jehovah's Witness in his life. Uh, and, and so we're going to be talking about how that shaped his music and how it made him like a really interesting kind of singular person in the music industry. Uh, so we're really excited about that episode coming up. Of course, we have a lot of more great stuff in the hopper. But for now, we'd love to hear uh, what rituals you have enjoyed as a part of, of building your faith. And also, of course, what you're into this week. Uh, thanks for listening. Until next time, take care of yourself. Out there.